The text from the Old Testament for this first Sunday of Advent is Isaiah 64. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there with me. As you turn there, just a special invitation and reminder that this Wednesday night, uh, Pastor Brent and I this week will gather together and we'll think and talk about hope. Um, He and I will have a few prepared thoughts, but uh, there are spaces and places for you to give us questions this week. as we think about what are the things we should hope for? What does that hope mean for us? Where does our hope lie? There may be questions that you have and I would love to have a wonderful conversation and celebration of the hope that we have in Christ. And so we'd love for you to be a part of that. But this morning we turn our attention to Isaiah 64, verses one through nine. If you're able, if you're with us this morning, if you will stand with me in honor of the Lord's word. No. If only you would tear open the heavens and come down. (laughs) Mountains would quake before you like fire lighting brushwood or making water boil. If you would make your name known to your enemies, the nations would tremble in your presence. When you accomplished wonders beyond all our expectations, when you came down, mountains quaked before you. From ancient times, no one has heard nor ear has perceived. No eye has seen any God but you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You look after those who gladly do right. They will praise you for your ways. But you were angry when we sinned. You hid yourself when we did wrong. We have all become like the unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a menstrual rag. All of us wither like a leaf. Our sins like the wind carry us away. No one calls on your name. No one bothers to hold on to you. For you have hidden yourself from us and have handed us over to our sin. But now, Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. All of us are the work of your hand. Don't rage so fiercely, Lord, and don't hold our sins against us forever, but gaze now on your people, all of us. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There's a question that keeps getting asked um, in books I've been reading lately, and blog posts and podcasts, articles. In fact, I would say uh, for me right now, leading the congregation, it is the question that has been haunting me as I think about our life together and the days to come. And that is this question, are these last nine months and the months that we still have ahead of us until we get to the end of this COVID stuff? Are these last nine months and the months ahead of us, are they a time of interruption Or are they a time of disruption? Are these months a time of interruption or are they a time of disruption? And let me explain why that question is important. Interruptions are momentary blips on the screen of life, if you will. (laughs) Um, You're working on something and the phone rings and you end up in a conversation that went a little longer than you expected, but then you put the phone down and get back to work. 
you're headed to work and the light comes on that you have a flat tire or the engine's broken and you spend a few hours in the shop you didn't expect that day, but eventually that interruption goes away and you get back to normal. You get sick for a few days and you have to call in and be out of work for just a few days, but things get interrupted, put on hold, but eventually they get back to normal. But disruptions are different. Disruptions are key moments when, where things are not only delayed, but they are fundamentally in that delay changed. They're altered. You kind of go back, but things are not the same when you go back. One way of existence stops or is at least greatly altered and a whole new way of being emerges. In disruptions, things get lost um, or at least trivialized while other practices, habits, uh, systems take their place. We oftentimes think of the word disruption related to particular technologies of disruption. So for example, around the turn of the 20th century, that was not a good time to invest in buggy-making companies. It was not the moment to decide to put it all in on horseshoe-making. For while Henry Ford is rolling his first cars off the assembly line, whether horse breeders and carriage makers knew this, their whole way of living was about to get fundamentally altered forever. When Orville and Wilbur first dreamed of airplanes and now jets came into existence, ships and shipbuilding still exist, but not like it used to. For planes radically changed the whole way we think about travel. Streaming services that just seemed like a kind of science fiction a few years ago are now a reality in our lives, even this morning. And so, apologies to all of you who own stock in Blockbuster. Um, <laughs> huge mistake. Today is not the day to buy a record store. Um, online shopping, especially in this time period, and the ease of shipping, you don't even have to leave home. Even though a day like yesterday where we try to celebrate and prop up small businesses, we wonder... Have things been fundamentally altered? Have things been disrupted forever? And in moments, there are accelerators to those disruptions. Um, for example, historians look back at the first two world wars and say those two events, eventually we were going to have all these roads and cars everywhere. That was going to happen. But the push to industrialize as we entered into two world wars and the ability to try to get from one coast to the other rapidly accelerated cars in our lives, new forms of transportation, interstates that took the place of dusty roads. And so as we enter this Advent season, we're wrestling with this question. When we look back at 2020, Will historians think of this moment that we've been living through as a time of interruption, where we were inconvenienced for a while, but eventually got back to the way things used to be? Or are we in a period of disruption? Then in a few months, will we go back and, as one, uh, one interviewee I heard on a podcast this week said, I don't even like to use the word new normal because I'm not sure normal is the right 
noun to express the way things may be when we get back together. And will we find that these months maybe have accelerated transitions that were already beginning to happen in our lives? For example, as a pastor, I have to admit, I've been nervous for about 10 years at the change of habits in terms of attendance and connectedness and ways that people connect not just with Christ but with the church. And my sense is that if these nine plus months have done anything, it hasn't changed that. It has accelerated the reality of that for all of us. Isaiah chapter 64 is in a context. Isaiah chapters 56 through 66 are a very important kind of moment in Israel's history, Judah's history. And it is a time this morning that I would argue is a time of accelerated disruption. We have thought about this before, that that many scholars think Isaiah 1 through 39 was written to the people before they enter into exile in Babylon in 587. And the chapters 40 through 55 are addressed to that period where they find themselves in exile. But 56 through 66, where our text is found this morning, come to the people when they've gotten back to Jerusalem. But here's what they have discovered. They have discovered perhaps that when they were released by Cyrus and allowed to go back to Jerusalem, perhaps they thought this... 70 years or so, was just a time of interruption. It was lengthy and it was challenging and it was not a lot of fun to live in Babylon, but maybe this was just an interruption and now that we're back in Jerusalem, everything will be the way it was before. Yay! But the reality of 56 through 66 is this. When the people get back to Jerusalem, they realize there is nothing there. As I say in the devotional for this morning, it's like people returning home to the Gulf after a hurricane has eliminated everything. Every once in a while, I imagine while we were living in California and our home was up on the mountain a bit, there were a couple of times in our years there where we had to evacuate. One time in particular where we had to go down the hill and stay in a hotel for a couple of nights and evacuate our neighborhood. And there's that sense of, is this a two-day interruption and we'll get back to normal after we air out the house a little bit? Or will indeed the fire come and now this is no longer an interruption but a disruption because everything that we owned and had is gone, right? This text comes in that moment where what they hoped was an interruption, the reality is it is now a disruption. They've come back to Jerusalem and no longer is exile just an interruption in their journey. Now everything will be different because nothing exists. They truly have to start all over. And so they experience this sort of double whammy of exile and destruction that becomes this period of disruption in their lives. And so how do they respond? How do they respond when the reality of disruption hits them? This morning, if you have the text still open, verses 1 through 4, so profound, that start with that impassioned plea, oh, if only you would tear open the heavens and come down. Verses 1 through 4 are a mixture of grief, lament, frustration, And a little bit of nostalgia in verses 3 and 4 especially goes to language of, oh, do you remember how it used to be? Remember when you used to show up and fire fell? Remember when the nations quaked in front of you? Oh, those were good days. 
The only bad part about the pictures from last week, the kind of memories of the sanctuary were, do you remember when, every, when this place was full? Remember that? Remember days? I've been in the church my whole life, and it feels like about 80% of our conversations are, oh, remember, remember when Christ was Lord and we ran the aisles? Oh, those were good days. People waved hankies. Our first response to disruption is grief and lament and frustration and nostalgia. Verses 5 through 7 are kind of the second movement, if you will, in response to disruption. Verses 5 through 7 turn to confession. But you were angry when we sinned. We have become like the unclean. Our sins like the wind carry us away, Judah proclaims. Verses 5 through 7 are confession, a a recognition that even as we think about the good old days, maybe maybe we've forgotten an an awful lot. Maybe the good old days had their own sets of issues. Maybe the good old days were good for us, but not for everyone. (laughs) Let's not forget that the good old days had an awful lot of oppression in them, an awful lot of sin. And so our our second and I think more helpful response to disruptive change is introspection. It's, It's honesty, it's vulnerability, it's confession. And so here are God's people dealing with disruptive change, knowing that everything is going to be different, beginning with lament and grief and nostalgia and moving to introspection and honesty, vulnerability, confession. But the part I love in the text, and I have this written in my Bible, it's okay for you to write it in yours. I love that as the translators worked on this text, they put a double space between verses 7 and 8. I've written in my Bible, the gap. This really dates me, but do you remember when the gap was a new jeans store? (laughs) And there was a commercial that was a fall into the gap, gap. I can't get all the way down there. Fall into the gap. Do you remember that commercial? Every time I walk into that store, I want to sing, fall into the gap. There's a sense in which I I think of that space in between verses 7 and 8 as falling into the gap. They have fallen into the space. They have fallen into that crevice. They have fallen into that canyon of despair that comes when we are in moments of disruption, when we realize everything is changing and is going to be different, and where we lament and we weep and we also confess. We fall into that gap. And there is this wonderful gap there, but then that gap is broken in the common English Bible with the word but, in many of your translations with the word yet. However, hey, ha, yahoo, woo, yo. But now, Lord, and we get these three affirmations And if you don't get anything else out of this morning, underline these three affirmations. But you are our Father. You 
are our parent. Which means that we are dearly loved children. You are our father. And therefore we can rest in the fact that we are dearly beloved by you. You are a potter. You are the one constantly working and remaking and reforming instruments and vessels that will be of benefit to your kingdom and your purposes and your new creation. You are constantly at work making instruments for your glory. And the third, and we, this is our only response, (laughs) and we, Lord, are willing to be the work of your hands. We're open to doing what you want to do. You are our father. You are a potter. And we are the clay that you are remolding and remaking. One of the things that I think is true about Judah, and again, I love this, that they come to this moment of disruptive change and they, they lament and they cry because that's what you do and they get nostalgic because that's what you do and, and they confess because that's the right thing to do and they introspect and they, they get honest and vulnerable because that's what you should do and they kind of fall into this gap but then they hear these affirmations and what happens out of their life? For Judah, three amazing things happen. First of all, they become a people of practice. They develop all new practices. Hang with me here for just a minute. What I love about the latter part of the Old Testament is the people of God begin to change and they realize, man, back, if we go back to our history, when we first moved into the promised land, there were all these nations there and they were kind of, they were wicked and bad and violent and they were not hospitable to us. And so do you know what you do with those nations? Yeah, kill them. You bring down their walls, you eliminate them. There are these laws in the early part of the Old Testament called the harem laws, where you just eliminate everything, because that's the only way to get through life, is to eliminate everybody. But now they realize that's a really terrible thing to do. And in fact, you really can't do it, because there's always going to be an Assyria, a Babylon, a Persia, a Rome, like there's always going to be the next empire that is bigger, better, badder, has bigger weapons than you've ever dreamed of. And so what the people begin to do is realize, how do we keep our life alive then? Well, we participate in practices that will allow us to constantly, whether we're in Assyria or Babylon or Persia or Rome, no matter where we are, we will be able to continue to be the unique people of God living there because these new practices sustain us. You weren't very excited about that. This is really good. And not only did they begin to develop these practices that they would become identified by, but brothers and sisters, we probably would not have this had this time of disruption not happened. Because one of the key practices for them to sustain that life was to know their story. And so our scripture did not fall out of the sky. But what we know as the Old Testament, what Jewish people would call the Tanakh, 
largely came together, the scriptures began to be formed because these people realized if we are going to face this disruptive future where empires are always going to be around us, we had better know our story and put it together in a way that generation after generation after generation can learn and study and eat and make part of themselves. And so we we have Holy Scripture Thanks to Ezra and others who began to say, we need to be a people who know this story. And most particularly, in prophets like especially Isaiah, but in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, we begin to get a new prophetic imagination for even if we get a king back, which would make things seem a little more normal, What kind of king now do we want? Do we want a king like David in the old days or Solomon? Or is it perhaps that we need a different kind of leader to lead us into God's future? And the prophets begin to imagine and have messianic expectations that are sort of like the old days but are so not like the old days. And they set us up for texts that we will read again and again and again this season as we celebrate that the pathway was made for the imagination of Christ as Messiah. Not as conqueror, but as sufferer. Not as warrior, but shepherd. And so here we are. and I don't know, I have a sense that when historians look back at these, next, these last few months and the months to come, I have a sense that they will think of them more as disruption than interruption, but we'll see. But I know today that many of you are facing disruptions. This has been a time of deathliness. As of this morning, 266,000 plus people in the U.S. that have died of COVID, 1.45 million globally. But you add on top of that, just uh, the kind of regular patterns of loss. This has just been, felt like a very weighty, heavy year of loss for us as a community. Prayed for a number of you this last Thursday morning as I got up and knew that for so many of you, not just Thanksgiving, but the rest of the season will not be a season that has been interrupted by loss, but has been disrupted. It will not be the same. Many in this community have not just experienced the loss of COVID, but the battles with cancer, Diagnoses that just make everything not an interruption but a disruption. Things are now different than they were before. So many of you in recent days have been reaching out because of the struggles that you're having. Because getting old is hard. Amen. <laughs> and some of you are facing challenges because your body doesn't do what it used to do. And your mind and the mind of your spouse doesn't think the way that it used to think. 
And it is not an interruption, it is a disruption. More so than in any year I can remember as a pastor, folks in our community have had to struggle with challenges in their relationships, and, and the number of divorces in our community has been pretty high this year. That may be in part because everything we're going through has accelerated issues that were already present. It may just be in the realities of life difficulties come, and and not just in marriages, but in families, dysfunction serve not just as interruptions, but as disruptions to everything that has come before. A lot of us have experienced dislocation, several economic dislocation. A lot of you who are with us online today, you are online with us today somewhere out, <laughs> spread out from this direct community because you feel dislocated from the communities that you have belonged to. Places that have felt like home and family for a number of reasons feel dislocated now. And not as interruptions, as though small breaks that then we can go back to normal, but, but disruptions where you know never, things can never be like they were before. And so I want to say to all of us who are disrupted today, first of all, it is okay to grieve. It is okay to make a needle point out of the first verse of Isaiah 64. If only you would tear open the heavens and come down. You have permission to lament and to holler at God. He can take it. Read the Psalms. God is okay with our frustrations and our angers and our sense that he has been silent far too long. And it's okay to be nostalgic. We will smile and nod our heads. We won't make fun of you until after you leave. No, we will. It's okay. It's okay to miss the way things were. It's better to allow moments of disruption to become times of introspection, of honesty, of risking vulnerability. of looking at Jesus and looking at ourselves and confessing that there is a huge difference. But after we have grieved and after we have confessed, remember these three affirmations. God is our Father. And we are dearly loved. God is a potter who will not give up on us until he has made all things new, not just in the creation, but in us. And the right response for us to God is to say, and we are the clay in your hands. 
we are open to whatever that new thing is that you want to do in us. I accidentally started a little bit of a Facebook kerfuffle yesterday. I didn't mean to. So when the publishing house asked me to write the devotional for, for this season, which was delightful and, and fun project to get to do, I forgot that other people will read it and have opinions about it. <laughs> and so yesterday morning, I just happened to log on just about the time a pastor in one of those kind of pastor sections in Facebook posted about the, the responsive reading that, that we read this morning that actually is in the book for churches to use if they want to this season. And, and the opening line, if you remember, says this, as God's people, we are neither optimistic nor pessimistic right, about the future. And so somebody posted a pastor, honestly, are you guys having problems with this first line? I don't get it. Because I think, as Christians, we are optimistic about the future. I am optimistic about what God's going to do in the future. And I, don't, I don't understand why we can't be optimistic. And so, as Facebook does, it notified me, hey, somebody's talking about you. You should, get a, <laughs> you should pay attention. So, I jumped in and, and just responded, yeah, I, I get it. I'm sorry that, that that's confusing. As Christians, it probably is better for us to be optimistic rather than pessimistic people, at least we'll have more friends. I like people whose glass is half full <laughs> as opposed to half empty. But I said to him, the problem is with optimism is it's the sense that we, that we possess some kind of attitude that is really ours. Or it is really some characteristic, like we took a personality test and we found out that we are a five or an eight or a two. Whatever makes us more optimistic, that's what we are. And you should be that too. As though optimism is about just gritting our teeth or just having this sort of pie in the sky attitude that says everything will work out okay. In the end. It will, it'll work out, honey. Everything will be fine. I am convinced that the scripture in its lament does not invite us to be optimistic about the future or just be able to grit our teeth and say everything will work out if we just work hard enough and stay at it, keep a, keep a stiff upper lip. That's why that response that you gave this morning is so important. As God's people, we are neither optimistic nor pessimistic. Here is the line. We are prisoners of Hope. <laughs> we are prisoners of hope. I do not know if this disruption that we are experiencing will be over quickly or if we will continue to struggle and wrestle through all the ways our lives have been disrupted. I don't know as Judah gets back to Jerusalem if Ezra and Nehemiah will be able to pull everybody together and rebuild the city overnight and everything will be like it was I'm not optimistic that they'll be able to pull that off or that 
We will get through these things quickly, but I and you and we together have a father who loves us, a potter who is working on us, and we are the clay, and therefore we can be prisoners of hope that he who started this work in us is faithful to bring it to completion. And so as we enter Advent, we are a people lamenting and confessing but we are a people of hope, of hope, of hope that we are loved and that God won't give up on us. And if we are open to what he is doing, he will form us to be a reflection of him and make us a vessel of his glory and honor. Thanks be to God. God, we come today um, in a time that feels not like interruption, but disruption. And like Judah, we come lamenting and being nostalgic and complaining and wanting things to be new. And we come confessing, and we come vulnerable. And we come trying to be as honest as we can about our lives. But we come with this hope that you love us and know us, that you will not stop working on us, and that as we submit our lives to you, you will make us a new creation. God, I especially pray today for, for those in in this community and those who've connected online with us today, so many names I can think of who are facing moments of disruption. Moments that are not brief delays on the way back to normalcy, but who have faced loss, who are facing new realities, who are facing irreconcilable brokenness. Who are most um, impacted by the disruptions going on around us. Who know <laughs> that same feeling Judah felt as they got home hoping for an interruption and stood in rubble knowing that their life had been disrupted. And not even knowing where to start. Which stone to pick up, which, which rubble to clear away. Where do you even start? I pray that they would know this in the deepest part of their being as we begin this Advent together, that they would know this, that they are loved, they are yours, that you are their potter and you are forming them. And that there is goodness ahead of them in their future, a future that may be very different from their past, but a future in which you are present and you receive glory and where you 
Form us for the dignified purposes of your kingdom. So may, may you give to them more than just an optimistic attitude today. May you make them prisoners of that hope today. May that hope be the gift that you give to them today that makes moving forward possible. For we gather today in that hope. For you have come and you are coming. You have made things new and you are making all things new. You have saved and you are still saving. And so redeem us, we pray. For we pray in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen.